And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Genesis. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to bring you a Bible. We are in chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23, that's the first book of the Bible. The big numbers are the chapters. The little numbers are the verses. Genesis chapter 23. There are, I suppose... Few topics we like to think about less or talk about less than the topic of death. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you really are not immune to the dislike of the topic of death. Death is a nuisance, it's painful, it's hurtful, sorrowful. It is a reminder of our frailty and our weakness. It is, to use biblical categories, an enemy. And yet, I think many of us, in order to sort of make our way through life, often what we do is we just distract ourselves with little pleasures, little distractions to get us through the days, to get us through the weeks, to get us through the years. And that if we just open up our eyes, we know that death is all around us. I mean, just even this season, fall, is all about death as leaves fall from trees. Or you just turn on the news and you just hear about wars or rumors of wars or the possibility of war. Death is all around us. Now, when you're young, it's easier and easier to kind of sort of take the topic of death and put it in a box and bury it far from you and... You could probably do that for a few decades, but the older you get, the more life experience you have, the harder and harder it is to forget about death. Most of you know the author C.S. Lewis, and he, if you didn't know this, he would write a lot of letters. So if you wrote to him, he would probably write you back. And late in his life, as his body began to shut down in his 60s, he began to affectionately sign off C.S. Lewis, and then underneath that, he would call himself a tired traveler near the journey's end. If you've read anything C.S. Lewis has written, you know that he didn't shy, around, shy off the topic of death. He talked a lot about death. In many ways, generations past me, generations much older than me, talked much more openly about death. Death wasn't as taboo as it is now. After all, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of praise. The living ought to take this to heart. This fall, as I said earlier, we've been studying the book of Genesis. We've been studying the life of Abraham and what we can learn from Abraham's life from Genesis 12 to Genesis 24. And today... In chapter 23, we arrive at death's unfortunate door. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first death described in more than a passing glance in the story of the Bible up to this point in Genesis. Sarah, the great wife of Abraham, Sarah, the great mother of Isaac, Sarah, the great sister, and then faith dies. And yet in the depth of despair, 
there really is in this chapter a rising hope. Death, you're going to see, has a first word, but death does not have the final word in this chapter. And so my prayer this morning is that if you've tasted the bitter cup of mourning a lost one, or if you're feeling a bit like C.S. Lewis wanting to affectionately sign off as someone who's journeyed life, or if you've just begun and you feel like, i got a lot of battles left to wage, this chapter in different ways is for all of us. So to the weary traveler, I say, there's good news here. And to the traveler who has many battles to wage, I say there is good news here. Abraham greets death with defiant hope. And that is the big idea I want to set before you in this chapter. That we are called, particularly as Christians, to live defiant, defiantly gazing through death at better days to come. That's the big idea that I want to unpack. And I'm going to unpack it in three ways. There's three sort of narrative movements. So in verse 1 to 2, we're going to look at the pain in light of death. Then verses 3 through 16, the price in light of death. And then lastly, faith in light of death, verse 17 to 20. So if you will turn with me to chapter 23, I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. Sarah lived 127 years. These were in the years of life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Ereba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in and mourned for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you a tomb to hinder you from buying your dead, from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me from Ephron, the son of Zohor, that he may give me the cave at Mechpelah which he owns. It is, in this, it is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sit- sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in the gate of the city. No, my dear, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the, uh, I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is this between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites for 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Mechpelah, which was at east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went into the gate of his city. 
After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave in the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, the field, the, the field and the cave that is in that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for bearing, for a burying place by the Hittites. So first, let's look at the pain, the mourning, the grief of death. It's been almost 40 years since the birth of Isaac. Almost three quarters of a century had passed since Abraham and Sarah left the Earl of Chaldeans and made their way to the promised land. And they lived as nomads. They lived journeying from place to place. They were, you know, following the Oregon Trail before the Oregon Trail existed. That was Abraham and Sarah. They lived a hard life, not an easy life. But Sarah, who suffered much in her life, received God's promise and had a son, Isaac. God had worked marvelously in and through Abraham and Sarah's life. Sarah, she lived a full life, 127 years old. I mean, it wasn't a perfect life. We've seen that. But as the book of Hebrews tells us in the New Testament, she lived a faithful life. And after 127 years old, she died. And Abraham responded as anyone would have responded. Verse 2. He mourned. He wept. One of the tricks of reading the Bible well is to slow down long enough that you see the obvious. Abraham wept. Weeping, you see, is the right and loving response to death. If you might remember that one of the shortest verses in the New Testament, one that you can all leave here having memorized, is that Jesus wept. And he did so in light of his friend Lazarus, who had just died. Jesus wept. Abraham wept. And yet, if you're anything like me, weeping, crying, kind of those sort of emotions are hard. It's hard to know sort of what to do with them. And maybe you sort of grew up in a home where the mantra was like, don't worry, be happy, or turn that frown upside down, or like harness your inner Pollyanna. We sort of live in a culture where sometimes we get uneasy when people experience and share their emotions. And so we do one of two things. We either become slaves to our emotions, just letting them rule and reign. Or on the other hand, we just nuke our emotions and just bury them deep. Both are unhelpful ways. Abraham wept, which is a very natural thing that he did. His wife had just died, and yet it's not just natural. I don't know if you know this. It's actually a command in the Bible. In Romans chapter 12, verse 5, Paul commands us to this end. He says, weep with those who weep. Now, that might not be your favorite command in the Bible, your favorite verse in the Bible, and you might look for like a kind of a, a clause to get you out of it, but it's for all of us to weep with those who weep. The first part of it says rejoice with those who rejoice and then weep with those who weep. The rejoicing can be often 
the easiest, but it's much harder to know how to weep with those who weep. We just kind of don't know how to engage in people's world and experience their emotions in ways that feel helpful. But weeping is a sign of love. Uh, A couple weeks ago, my son was getting ready for his last soccer game, and it was sort of a sort of a championship game of, of sorts uh, at his private school. And so he was getting ready for it. It was early on Saturday. And then all of a sudden I got the text that the game was canceled because of rain. And I had to break the news to him. And he grieved. He was sad. Now that is an appropriate emotional response. Why? Because he loved soccer. He was looking forward to playing in that game. And so his emotions of grieving matched what was going on in his life. He was mourning the loss of that game. Abraham wept. Jesus wept. We are commanded to weep with those who weep. Now, what does this look practically? It's going to look different from person to person, personality to personality, but let me just give you one application on what this looks like. I think I experience a form of this every time I go to an elders meeting. So every time we go to an elders meeting, we actually take up the Bible, we read a portion of scripture as elders, and then we open up our membership directory, which is like next to the Bible, the most important kind of book I have. It's just filled with the members of this church. And we then take a page of the membership directory and we pray. And I'm always encouraged by one elder in particular who does something and has discipled me. He, before he kind of takes God's word and then prays for God's people, he for a second thinks about what's going on in that person's life. That conversation that he just had with that person about their struggle with anxiety or depression or that wayward child. He just for a second just thinks about what what it's like that this person is married to a non-Christian and and feels lonely, or what it's like to, to be the only Christian in his work, or that they're struggling with just constant pain of arthritis. And he just sits in it for a moment and considers what it would be like to live life. And then he takes God's word and prays. He just, for a moment, sits in the shoes of someone else and feels what it's like to be a Christian or what it's like to experience their life. And then he prays. And I'm telling you, when you hear his prayers, they are so instructive. Because we've all been in those times where we prayed and you almost pray robotically. And you're just kind of just praying like the things that you know you should pray for health and for God's comfort or whatever. But then when you really pray for someone and you really consider what's going on in their life, And then you take God's word that you just had read and meditate on and you take it and wield it, having marinated in the person's life. That is a form of obeying Romans 12, weeping with those who weep. So that's my encouragement for you all. If you're like, I don't know how to do this. My encouragement to you all is consider as you're praying for your spouse, your children, your neighbors, Consider what's going on in their life just for a moment. Put yourself in their shoes and then take God's word and pray for them. And your faith, your prayers will be exceedingly greater having done so.
Abraham wept. Jesus wept. We too are called to weep and mourn with those struggling. So that's the pain of death. Now let's look verses 3 through 16, and this is the price in light of death. And this really is the, the bulk of the chapter, and you're like, this is, why is this here? That, that's a good Bible study question. You're like, if you read verse 1 and 2, Sarah died, and then you skipped to maybe verse 17, you'd be like, I don't need this middle section. It just seems to be fluff. It really is a negotiation, like a, a negotiation of a burial plot. And if you remember what, why there's, what Abraham needs this is that Abraham, as verse 3 says, is a sojourner. Like, he's traveling through. He has no property, he has no land, and so he has no place to bury his wife. And so, from verse 4 to verse 16, we have an ancient Near East real estate negotiation. And if you're anything like me, you hate to do negotiating. I remember I was thinking about this, like, why do I hate it? And I think it's because of the first time I ever negotiated the price of a car. I went in with my older sister, and I was like, I'm going to get the best price for my sister for this car. She wanted a black Jeep Grand Cherokee, and I was like, all right. She, like, found it online, and so we went in. I remember we drove from Seattle to Auburn. Every time I drive through Auburn, I wince because of this experience. And we walked in, and I'm like, I'm going to play aloof. I know how much I'm going to get. Like, I just I had it all worked out. I talked to people. Like, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to play stupid for a while. And then I'm going to just like, bam, I'm going to see him knock off like $5,000 from the sticker price. So we go in and looking at the car and I'm playing, you know, no, oh, you know, there's, maybe we'll get a Subaru. You know, I'm doing that kind of stuff, even though I know like this is the car. And the salesman is like talking to me and finally he makes his pitch and we haven't even driven the car. He finally says, are you interested in the car? And my sister goes, we'll take it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And have you, you ever had those conversations? You don't use words, you just use your eyes. I'm like, stop. And so I like go, well, we should test drive it. And we're looking at some other things. And my sister like doubles down. It's like, no, no, that's the one I want. So then I like rush and I'm like, okay, so how about $2,000 off the sticker price? And he's like, nah, you're paying full price. <laughs> and he's like, I'll throw in some mats. And I'm like, done. Okay, that's basically what's going on in Abraham's day. From verse 4 to verse 16, it's a, it's a negotiation that's going on. And so there's steps in a negotiation, as we know of. So step one in the negotiation between Abraham to get a burial plot, Abraham just announces his need, right? He needs some land. And Abraham is a respected man. He's living among the Hittites, and so they even call him you're a prince of God. They respect him. He is well-respected in the community. Remember, he's rich. And so he says, I-, I need a tomb. I need a burial plot. But then he says, not just any, because they say, you-, you can have anyone you want. And he goes, well, there's really one I got my eye on. It's from, it belongs to Ephron, the, Z- from the son of Zohor, in the cave of Mechpelah. That's the one I want. That's step one. Step two, Ephron sort of steps forward, and he's like, hey, Abram, you can just have my cave. Just have it as a gift. And instantly you're like, I don't think, I'm with most commentators that don't think that Ephron really 
is saying you can have this feel, you can have this cave for free. This is like a nice way of going about the negotiation. So do you ever do this? Uh, um, years ago, I was, went out to dinner with a, a good friend, and we went out to a nice dinner. And uh, we, we ate a lot of food, and all of a sudden, had a great conversation. The bill came, and I looked at the bill, and I was like, I can't afford that. And so I'm just like slightly panicking, and he's got a good job. And so he grabbed it, he goes, no problem, it's on me. And I do the dance, right? I grab my wallet, and I'm like, no, no, I got it. And I'm just hoping he doesn't call my bluff, right? It's like the nice thing to do. The whole time, I'm just hoping he picks up the tab, which he did. All right, we do this, or at least I do this. I think that's what's going on here. Like, like in the negotiation, Ephraim's like, well, just have it. Like, oh, no problem, no problem. And Abram's like, list your price. That's step two. Step three, Ephron, he's a salesman. He upsells Abraham. I don't know if you noticed, Abraham wants a cave and he goes, well, I got a cave, but the cave is on a field. So you got to buy the cave and the field. It's like, you know, you go in for an iPhone and you're like, okay, I want to buy an iPhone. And they're like, well, you need the case, you need insurance, you need the the car charger, and you might as well go next door and go buy a Tesla too, because you probably need one of those too, right? It's like a classic upsell that Ephron's doing. It's a bit of an extorting that's going on, and he knows that he can get away with it. I mean, Abraham basically said, I got a lot of money, and I want that one. So small inventory, high demand, Ephron can say and ask about any price. And so finally, Abraham goes, how much? And Ephron's like, this is going to be peanuts to you, 400 shekels of silver. Now, how much is that? No idea. But I do know this, and everyone knows this. It's a lot of money, okay? That's all we know. Like a lot of money. Abraham buys it anyway. Last step. Abraham counts out the money. If you see, there's a repeated uh, kind of phrase like, hear me, hear me. He he wants to do everything above board. Abraham does. So he's like, here here, here are the negotiation. We're doing it publicly. We're doing it in like the town square. And here's the money. He like counts out the money. Here's one shekel, two shekel. Here's a hundred shekels. He counts it all up. Everything is above board. He has witnesses. He like signs the deed. And then he secures the property Right, rightly, truthfully, honestly. I mean, there's a high price for this plot, but he does it anyway. Now, you're like, why is this in here? I mean, it's interesting, but why is this in here? Well, one thing we do know is that Abraham is insistent that he does not receive this cave as a gift. And if you think about it, it makes sense. You, you ever given a gift and then realized like a year later that there were strings attached to that gift? Abraham doesn't want to have any strings attached to this. If you remember from Genesis 14, when the king of Sodom says, I'm going to give you some money, he's like, I don't want to get rich from you. I want my wealth to come from God. So Abraham's like, no, no, no. If, If this is a gift, then I might have to owe you something in return. I want this fair and square. Because in many ways, Abraham is not just buying a field. He's not just buying a burial plot. 
He isn't even just bearing Sarah. Abraham is living defiant faith even in the context of life. And we know that because of this third movement. This last movement when we see Abraham's faith bursting out in the context of death. So Abraham, starting in verse 17, he takes possession of the field and he buries Sarah, his wife, in that grave. Now, Abraham could have traveled back to his homeland in the Ur of Chaldeans. He obviously had family still there. I'm guessing he had a field in order to bury Sarah in. He could have done that. Like, we, we sometimes even do that, right? In our younger age, we, like, buy a burial plot or, or a land, and then we, in our older age, like, move away, and now we have to, like, go back. Like, we do those sorts of things. And in Abraham's day, they did those sorts of things, and yet Abraham's insistent that Sarah be buried in Canaan. And actually, the entire chapter is bracketed around this truth. Verse 2, Sarah died in Canaan. Verse 19, Sarah is buried in Canaan. The author Moses wants something to be crystal clear, that Sarah died and was buried in the land of promise. And Sarah isn't alone. Actually, at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, demands that he too be buried in Canaan. They're in Egypt at that point because of the famine. And he demands that he be buried in Canaan. Canaan. And so in all, at the end of the book of Genesis, we learned that Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Leah, and Jacob were all buried in this same cave that Abraham purchased from this Hittite. And then if you just were to flip over, don't do it, but fact check me on this. The last verse of the book of Genesis is a death. It's a burial. It's Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham. We read, the last, this is the last verse of the book of Genesis, we read, So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And you're like, ah, Joseph, unlike his father and grandfather, he's buried in Egypt. But if you go to one verse before the last verse, Joseph grabs his sons and he says, Swear to me. That when God brings us out of Egypt, you will take my bones and bring me to Canaan. So what's going on here? Well, the same thing that's happening in Jacob and his insistent to be buried in Canaan, and the same thing that Joseph is insistent that his bones are brought out of Egypt back into the promised land, is the same thing that's going on with Abraham. Abraham isn't just buying a plot of land. He's defiantly living his life, trusting in God's promise that bearing Sarah in the land, Abraham is saying this, that death does not nullify the promises of God. That's what this whole chapter is about, that even death does not nullify the promise of God because one of the promises of God was the possession of the land and Sarah died without fully taking possession. And Abraham, by bearing her near, there, is saying, even though she dies, and even though I will die not securing the land, death does not nullify the promises of God. If you went to the book of Jeremiah, a very similar thing happens in the life of Jeremiah. If you remember, God's people are expelled from the land because of their lack of faith. They had taken possession, 
under Solomon and King David, and yet the kingdom divided, and then eventually Jeremiah is living in the southern kingdom of Judah, and Babylon comes, and they take it. They're taking everything. I mean, the land is no longer there. And Jeremiah buys a field. And you're like, why? Why are you buying a field, Jeremiah? Like, price is pretty cheap at that point. But he buys it anyway, knowing that he will die in captivity, knowing that he's never going to be able to come back to the promised land. Why does he buy the land or a piece of property? It's the same reason why Abraham buries Sarah in Canaan. The death does not nullify the promise of God. Him purchasing a deed to that property was a reminder that their exile wouldn't last forever. He was trusting and believing that God would bring them back into the land after exile, after 70 years. And so what Abraham does is he he buys a tiny piece of land for way too much money. But really, when you think about it, it was peanuts because he knew that God had already given him and his descendants the land. Abraham, like Sarah, would die not securing the totality of the land. But one day, one day, he would secure it. God would deliver on his promise. Now, what does this have anything to do with us? I think it has everything to do with us. In Romans chapter 4, verse 13, Paul writes this, referring back to Abraham. He says, For the promise of Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the, and you think, land. That's what it's going to say. That's not the word Paul uses. Once again, For the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir to the world. The land promised to Abraham was partially fulfilled when Israel took possession of the land under David and Solomon. But even in Genesis, even in Psalm, the land was connected to a greater promise for God's people. It was much bigger than just the land. That one day the whole world would be inherited by God's people. That's what happened when Jesus came, if you remember. Jesus comes, God's own son comes, king of the universe, and he comes to that very land, and everyone's asking him, when will we get the land back? That's the question they're, all, they're asking. They want the land. And Jesus continually says, you're thinking too small. God wants to do something far greater than just this land. God wants to bring heaven and earth back together, to bring an end to death and sorrow, to remake all that is broken by sin. And then when Jesus dies and when God then raises him from the grave, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of our future resurrection. When not only will we receive a plot, but that's when ultimately the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah will be fulfilled what Paul writes in verse or in chapter 4 of Romans when the world will be inherited by God's people that is the ultimate hope of the church the greatest news for the christian the greatest delight of the soul of the redeemed is the consummation of all things 
the new heavens and the new earth, reigned by God himself as we, in resurrected bodies, worship God and obey him without fear or failure or furlough. That is the ultimate, ultimate hope of the church. And it was Abraham's. And it's ours. You might read somewhere or someone might tell you, oh, there's no resurrection in the Old Testament. Oh, you just got to read more careful. There is resurrection in chapter 23. Now, we're like Abraham in many ways because though that's our ultimate hope, we're living as sojourners until God fulfills that ultimate promise. We, we, we get tastes of that newness of life breaking in. Actually, baptism, what we're going to celebrate in just a few minutes, that is an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It's an inbreaking of newness of life. It's a bursting forth of heaven itself in the life of someone who, who God has brought from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We get these tastes of what God is doing. But they're just appetizers. Just like Abraham. We're not there yet. We're like Abraham still burying our dead, still awaiting God's fulfillment of his promise to make all things new. But one day there will be no undertakers. One day there will be no need for Tylenol. One day there may not or there will not be need for doctors and nurses. We still live awaiting Jesus' return, awaiting resurrected glory. And as we do, we still feel the pain of this world. We still feel our minds and bodies slowly breaking down the older we get. And yet that's just the context. That's just the backdrop of what God is doing ultimately. We get little down payments of God's inheritance. But one day we will get the full possession of all of God's promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ and consummated in Christ's return. So for now, we live as strangers, as foreigners, always looking forward just like Abraham. We live in this reality. We live as Abraham did with defiant faith that even death will not separate us in Christ Jesus. That even death cannot nullify the promises of God. We live, like Hebrew says, desiring a better country, never content, never satisfied with this world because God has left to remake a home for us, an eternal city where we will feel eternally at home. Abraham lived defiantly, gazing through death at better days to come. He knew that death, the death of his wife, the death of Sarah, and ultimately his death could not, would not, cannot nullify God's promised work. And that's how we should live as well. A, a few months ago, my mother-in-law came and she took my kids and they planted some seeds in a pot that they put on my front porch. And like a day or two after, my four-year-old asked where the flower was. And I told him, oh, it's there. You just can't see it. He said, well, when can I see it? And I said, an eternity for him, like nine months, six months. It's going to be a minute. But the seed has been planted. You just can't see it yet. 
It's there. It's just waiting to burst out in newness of life. All we have to do is wait. That's how we live defiant faith. We keep casting gospel seeds in faith to our children, in our neighborhoods, in our community, in this church. We root our lives in the world to do good, to love well, to fight for righteousness. And sometimes we see results. Sometimes we see a harvest. But often we don't. And so we wait. We wait because ultimately we know that God will bring in a harvest. We just keep planting. We just keep defiantly gazing at God, knowing that even death cannot nullify the promises of God. A few months before C.S. Lewis's death, he wrote to a woman named Mary, and he penned these words. Think of yourself, quote, just as a seed patiently waiting in the earth, waiting to come up as a flower in the gardener's good time, up to the real world, the real waking. I suppose that our whole present life, looked back on from there, will seem only a drowsy half-waking. We are here in the land of dreams, but cockcrow is coming. It is near now than when I began this letter. We are all flowers in the gardener's hand, and in time, in God's good time, he will resurrect us and fulfill his promise, the promise given to us, the promises given to Abraham, each and every promise. And it's our calling, it's our job to keep defiantly putting our faith in God. That's our job. That's your job. Let's pray. God, we, we are so grateful for the abundance of your grace in our lives. And even in the midst of sadness and death, we know that ultimately your son conquered our great foe, death, in the resurrection. And so we pray, Lord, that you would persevere us. We pray, Lord, that you would awaken in us a greater desire to pursue you, that you would encourage us to live defiant faith in this world. And we pray, Lord, that you'd bring a great harvest as we do that. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.